All right, we met here for the purpose of worship. Certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is prayer. And uh, we are going to begin today with silent prayer. It's going to be a little different today because uh, we're going to celebrate the 4th of July with a special message. So, so <coughs> excuse me, uh, We'll have silent prayer, and you be sure and think about uh, 1 John 1, 9, and uh, anything else you want to give to the Lord. Let us pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, uh, with reference to announcements, uh, I'm not going to have the the, uh, Bible study nor the prayer meeting on Wednesday because I'm presently scheduled to see the oral surgeon and get another root taken out. Uh, So uh, I might not be in good enough shape Wednesday at night to teach. And... uh, the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the prayer list is up here. However, so be sure you get one and and use it as the case may be. All right, uh, with reference to giving, do not forget uh, the rules and regulations, if you will, in our church, which is don't give if you can't do it cheerfully. And uh, secondly, if you want to give and you don't have anything to give, you can give as we have a moment of silent prayer. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to worship. Now I would ask a very special blessing upon both the gift and the giver, and then guide us throughout the rest of our lesson. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, now let's go to our 4th of July message. Uh, by way of a preface, the leaders of our country and their struggle for independence often spoke about the Lord and relied upon His leadership in what we call the war for independence. These leaders clearly recognized the danger in declaring independence from a foreign power. A quote or two will perhaps help us to understand better what they believed concerning uh, their future and who controlled that future. All right, for example, Henry Mullenberg, one of the founders of the Lutheran Church in America and the pastor of a local church near Valley Forge, Virginia, while preaching to his congregation, spoke of General Washington as follows. I heard a fine example today, namely His Excellency General George Washington rode around among his army and admonished each and every one to fear God, to put away the wickedness, and to practice the Christian values. From all appearances, this gentleman does not belong to the so-called world of society, for he respects God's word, believes in the atonement through Christ, and bears himself in humility and gentleness. Therefore, the Lord God has also singularly, yes, in fact, marvelously preserved him from harm in the midst of many perils, and has hitherto graciously held him in his hand as a chosen vessel. Pastor Mullenberg closed his message by saying, In the language of the Holy Writ, there is a time for all things. There is a time to preach, and a time to fight. And after his stirring message in which he spoke of his opinion of General Washington, the reverend threw off his robes to reveal the uniform of an officer in the Revolutionary War. That afternoon, at the head of 300 men, he marched off to join General Washington's troops. He served until the end of the war, and it was during this time he was promoted to Major General. And then there was Abigail Adams, wife of John Adams, the second president, who spoke of the source of future events. Quote, The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but the God of Israel is he that giveth strength and power unto his people. George Washington, commander of the Revolution Army, encouraged his men And I'll quote again, The fate of unborn millions will now depend under God on the fate, on the courage of his army. We have therefore to resolve to conquer or die. Samuel Adams spoke of the source of our rights as endowed by the laws of the Creator. John F. Kennedy, while serving as our 35th president, reminded us of those same inalienable rights so eloquently described by President Adams. The rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. May the Lord bless the teaching of the word this day. Let us pray. Father, this morning we acknowledge that you reign in majesty and strength.
The world you establish cannot be moved. Your throne is forever. The seas lift up their voices in praise of your name. The pounding of the waves give evidence of your greatness. The distant thunder gives indication of your power. Your statutes stand forever. Holiness adorns your presence. And though the wicked spring up like grass and evildoers seem to flourish, they will soon be destroyed because you and you only are worthy. The evildoers pour out arrogant words. They boast of their deeds. They hunt down your people. They ridicule your words. They speak of the Christian faith as but an opiate of a deplorable people out of step with political correctness and diversity. But we know, Father, you have not rejected your people. Many in this world band together against us. Their leaders have risen to positions of power just as they did in 1776. We are no longer, Father, under bondage from those across the Atlantic, but we are in bondage by those who sit in judgment of us. Help us this morning to learn from the examples of our national forefathers who decided freedom was worth any sacrifice. It is in Jesus' name that I pray. All right, by way of introduction to honor America on this fourth day of July, I thought it might be of value to think about liberty and liberty's price. Some of us take liberty, or these liberties that we enjoy today, for granted. But we must never forget the Revolutionary War, just the first of many battles and wars fought by brave men on battlefields all over the world. So what happened to those 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence? Four signers were captured by the British, tortured and executed. Twelve have their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons while serving in the Revolutionary Army, and one had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds and hardships of the war. Captain Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships swept from the sea by the British Navy and his home confiscated to pay his debts. He died in rags, a poor and disconsolate patriot. Thomas McKinn served in the Congress without pay. His possessions were taken and poverty was his reward. The history of the signers is replete with stories of similar horrific sacrifices. Freedom indeed has its price. It is not free. It has never been free, nor will it ever be free. Liberty has always had need for soldiers with the courage to fight and die for their country. June the 6th, 1944 was aptly called by Cornelius Ryan, the longest day. That found the price of freedom being paid all across France. I will call, <coughs> excuse me, I will quote a small but never to be forgotten adventure chronicle in Ryan's book, appropriately entitled, The Longest Day. The longest day was soon to come. The invasion of Normandy was about to begin. But first, numerous towns and villages located on strategic roads behind enemy lines had to be secured. And only the airborne could do that job. The Hun had to be blocked. Replacements must not be permitted access to Omaha or Utah Beach. Such was the assignment for the 82nd 
and the 101st Airborne Divisions. In wave after wave, 882 aircraft carrying 13,000 men were heading for six drop zones, all within a few miles of St. Mir Eglise. In the square of the city, everyone looked up. The burning house forgotten. No one had time to put out the fire. Warriors were tumbling out of the sky. The guns of the city began to belch a rain of terror for men whose average age was only 20. The church bell clowned, clanged, excuse me, to sound the alarm. This would be the last sound many of the warriors of the 82nd and the 101st would ever hear. The sound of freedom is often preceded by the sound of battle followed by terrible memories of brave men like Private Ernest Blanchard. He heard the church bell. He heard the gunfire. But years later, he could only remember seeing a fellow paratrooper disintegrate before his very eyes. He and his friend had jumped into the darkness just a moment before. Gunfire from the ground had detonated his friend's pact of ordnance, which had been tightly wrapped around his body. Private Blanchard's fellow pathfinder was now plasma, a vapor disappearing into the night. He was on his way to serve elsewhere. He wouldn't need the ordinance anymore. But wait, the price of your freedom and mine was paid long before 1944. It began with the Seven Year War, a war known in America as the French and Indian War. This war settled forever a century-long struggle between England and France for colonial supremacy. Although the 13 English colonies had provided most of the manpower for that part of the conflict fought in America, numerous units of the British regular army had been sent from England. There had been a major commitment of forces by the Royal Navy and the Royal Exchequer had footed all the bills. So it seemed only right to King George that the colonists should pay for their own security. Their defense should no longer be a burden to the British taxpayer. The colonists, however, were determined, were determined that they would not pay for or accept any obligations imposed on them by a legislature in which they had no vote. Taxation without representation is tyranny, they said. Local colonial governments met to assert their rights as British subjects. The British, however, were equally determined that their laws should be enforced. Parliament was convinced that the colonists were trying to avoid financial responsibility by placing the burdens of colonial administration and security upon England. The people of Massachusetts took the lead in opposition to the increasingly harsh enforcement measures. In 1772, under the leadership of Samuel Adams, a committee of correspondence was secretly formed to begin planning for the use of force, if necessary. In the spring of 1775, a delegation sent uh, and signed a message to King George what came to be known as the Olive Branch Resolution. The headstrong king refused to even receive the courier. Plans were then immediately made in the colonies to to declare their independence. A declaration of independence was voted in convention by the colonies 
on July 2nd, 1776, and proclaimed two days later on July the 4th. The first of many wars for freedom would soon begin. Men would soon die because freedom has a price. Freedom is never free. We should celebrate with special appreciation the 4th of July, special appreciation for the men in wars both here and abroad who elected to die while marching forward to assail a waiting enemy, all amidst terrible odds and all because they thought freedom was worth the ultimate price. The Bible is full of similar tales of sacrifice for freedom. Let's look at some of those biblical sacrifices. The Jews were detained from first along the banks of the Tigris River in what became known as the Babylonian Empire. This removal from their promised land was a product of three major defeats and dispersions. 606, 597, and 586 B.C. respectively. Later in a place known today as the land of the Ayatollah, Israel was placed under the heavy hand of a series of Persian kings. In fulfillment of a biblical prophecy, a king by the name of Cyrus would announce, quote, you may return to your homeland. Cyrus, king of Persia in 540 B.C., spoke of freedom to a small band of liberty-loving Jews. Jews who had been forcefully detained for more than three generations. For example, Second uh, Chronicles 36.22, and I'm going to read also 23, and then we'll go to Ezra. All right, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which, of course, is in Judah, who is there among you of all his people. The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. And then Ezra speaking. Ezra was a prophet as they returned to the land as a result of the proclamation. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And of course, if you want the full story, you can go to our website, westbankbiblechurch.com, and study the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah is one who spoke of that particular effort to rebuild first the temple, then later, of course, to rebuild the city. All right, the story of the return from Persia, like every story of freedom, is never an isolated event. It is a plan involving many. This scenario was 
a complicated divine plan because freedom is God's first divine institution. It is God who sponsors liberty with a special verb and an historical animated enthusiasm. Every client nation to God must provide freedom and freedom is protected best in nations. This is God's plan. For example, Genesis 10.5 says, By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. It was God who destroyed the first united nations. And I shall read Genesis 11.6, 7, 8, and 9. And the Lord said, Behold, as he looked down and saw what they were doing, all the nations gathering together. The people is one, and they have all one language. And this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, occurring of course to the Trinity, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. Satan's plan is to weaken the nations and sponsor internationalism. Isaiah fourteen twelve, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground? You who did weaken the nations. Much of the Bible tells of man and his quest for freedom. A client nation must provide privacy, freedom, and the right of the individual to pursue a course based upon his own volition and ability within the framework of the rules of law duly established by a sovereign state. In a Christian nation, freedom must provide for the right to accept or reject Christ, to believe or disbelieve the Bible, and even to distort His precious Word. Acts 17, 26 and 27, and I shall read. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. All right, the saga of freedom for Israel is circa 536 B.C., when some 40,000 intrepid but determined Jews who trusted in the promises of God made their way to Jerusalem to first build the temple and later the city of Jerusalem. A remnant would carry the seeds of freedom to plant them in the land. There they would wait with great expectation the promised Messiah. Zerubbabel, as the political leader, and Joshua, as the religious leader, led the first cadre of intrepid Jews back to their land. And, of course, that was based upon the promises that we have just cited, uh, where they would plant the royal escutcheon, first building the temple, 
And then much, much later, another proclamation would come, as we will see, to rebuild the entire city. So later, the torch of freedom would be handed to Nehemiah and his generation. It would be their turn to stand in the gap, to follow the colors to the high ground, to work within the bounds of the establishment, and to influence yet another king. That king was not Cyrus, but his name was Artaxerxes. And the year of his allowing a second return to the land was circa 445 B.C. Men like Daniel, who served and influenced Nebuchadnezzar, men like Zerubbabel, who ministered to and influenced Cyrus, and now a man like Nehemiah would influence Artaxerxes, all worked their way up to positions of influence. Freedom would forever be grateful. Freedom of choice, volition, had been used of the Lord to set the stage for a fight to determine who would control the land earlier given to his chosen people. Genesis 15:18. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Avram, saying unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The time had come for God to sound the toll of freedom, liberty for these lovers of choice and the restrained exercise of violence. Freedom would not come easy. Nehemiah, Nehemiah not only had to summon the courage to ask for permission and assistance for the long, dangerous, and arduous journey home, but he also had to generate both courage and leadership to resist those in the land who wanted to foil the will of God. Nehemiah prayed, and God answered, and the king authorized a return to the land to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah set off on a journey across deserts and mountains in search of freedom and liberty. Upon arriving in the land, he found there was little to please the eye. No manifestation of freedom, no parades and flags, and yet freedom very often begins with a step of faith and the use of personal choice. Later, during the age of the judges, freedom required many sacrifices and sometimes by unlikely players. For example, God called Gideon, a farmer, found hiding from the Midianites in an underground barn used to hide his product from marauding Arabs. God promptly gave his marching orders. Get up, hero. I have work for you to do. Gideon with 300 men routed the Midianites and freedom became a reality. And later David, a young man who had just completed his compulsory military training, was selected to slay a nine-foot giant. 1 Samuel 17, 50 and 51. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took Goliath's sword and cut off his head. The Philistines hastily fled the battlefield. All right, the chief threat to freedom. Belligerent nations wield military force not to defend their sovereignty, but often to vanquish and enslave other nations. They are deterred only when confronted 
by a superior force. General George S. Patton has written of war. Yes, no doubt war is unreasonable and makes little sense to a reasonable man, but 2,000 years of history has shown us that the on, that only madmen make wars, and the world has no shortage of madmen. No doubt today, with revolutions, wars, genocides, and suicide bombings going all over the world, one would conclude there are still enough madmen to go around. It was our Lord who said to his disciples, Until I return, there will always be wars and rumors of war. Man with his efforts at peace pipes, peace councils, treaties, leagues of nations, united nations, alliances and promises of one-worldism have perpetually world peace semantics about with great marble nuances. Unless promises written on parchments eloquently inscribed by politicians interested in elevating themselves above the protocol of God's laws and basic principles of national sovereignty, they abound. The prophet Jeremiah said it best, They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Men worth their salt must be ready to fight and to die for their homes and their families. The nobility of this concept was captured by General Douglas MacArthur. Quoting now, the soldier, above all other men, is required to practice the greatest act of religious training, sacrifice. In battle and in the face of danger and death, he discloses those divine attributes which his maker gave when he created man in his own image. No physical courage and no brute instinct can take the place of the divine help which alone can sustain. However horrible the incidents of war may be, the soldier who is called upon to offer and to give his life for his country is the noblest development of mankind. The soldier above all other people prays for peace, for he must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. But always in our ears ring the ominous words of Plato, only the dead have seen the end of war. Our freedom, which we celebrate each year on the 4th of July, came at a price in money, life, and limb. But liberty is so precious, it must be guarded constantly. And so, for America, national freedom began in 1776. As we ponder our freedom, we must keep in mind that Americans, through the ages, have chosen to make a statement about freedom. One such statement was made on February 23, 1969, in the Republic of Vietnam, Vietnam. Private First Class Oscar P. Austin went to the aid of a fellow Marine. As he neared the wounded man, a grenade hit the ground nearby. Austin threw himself between the injured Marine and the grenade. He caught the full effect and was killed instantly. For his heroism, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. 
Is resistance to an aggressor nation worth that price? Ask those survivors of the communist killing fields of Cambodia who witnessed 1,000,000 700,000 of their families and friends murdered. And then we saw in Rwanda, who in less than three months saw 800,000 of their wives, sisters, brothers, and fellow tribesmen butchered. Ask the Algerians, who lost 100,000 citizens to Muslim extremists. And ask the family and friends of the almost 3,000 Americans killed or horribly burned by Muslim terrorists on September the 11th, 2001. We in the United States have been fortunate to have fought our last several wars and police actions on the soil of other lands and thus avoided the first-hand ravages of war. The reason for our blessing comes from our client nation's status which spawned a brave cadre of fighting men who time and again have risen to the occasion and risked everything when duty called. George Patton again, in August 1945, spoke to key members of his Third Army. And this was just before he was to take the Third Army over to stop at the Battle of the Bulge. And it was done in a soccer stadium. And I have been pleased and pleasure to have heard a tape that uh, of that particular speech. Uh, and I smile when I say that because, you know, George C. Scott made a much better George S. Patton than George S. Patton. But uh, George Patton had a real high voice, and uh, I was so surprised as I listened to the cassette tape, which had been uh, given to me by a National Guard member, uh, which at that time was required listening as opposed to some of the required listenings that we see today. All right, let's go on. And maybe I can imitate George C. Scott. You men have just won a great war. The record of your accomplishments speaks for itself. As a moderate estimate, we killed, wounded, or captured ten Germans for every American loss killed or wounded. Now that all or nearly all of you are returning to civilian life, I believe I should continue to do my best to instruct you how to save your lives and the lives of your children. Now I realize in doing this I shall be criticized, but my conscience will be much clearer in the knowledge that I have done my duty as I see it. It is certain that the two world wars in which I have participated would not have occurred had we been prepared. It is my belief that adequate preparation would have prevented or certainly materially shortened all of our other wars, beginning with that of 1812. Yet each of our wars, there has always been the hue and cry to the effect that there will be no more wars. All right, conclusion. On more than one occasion, I have been asked what the Bible teaches of war. In most cases, the one questioning already has in mind, made up, his mind made up, thinking Christ's teaching would make war an anathema in a Christian nation. I was reminded of my 
Past Experiences by an editorial written by Frank Turek in which he recalled being asked by a taxi driver, Didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies and therefore war is wrong? What about loving your enemies? Now I read with pleasure Mr. Turek's response. He's written an excellent book, by the way, about uh, war, this particular subject. And in there he writes, and I'll be quoting, First, loving your enemies like turn the other cheek is a command for individuals in personal relationships. It is not a command for governments or for individuals put in grave bodily harm. As individuals, we should pray for our enemies and turn the other cheek instead of returning insult for insult. Such behavior demonstrates supernatural love aimed at securing the offender's conversion to Christ. But those commands do not mean that we have no right to personal self-defense, nor do they mean that a nation should not protect us, its people, from other hostile nations. Soldiers are needed because, as Paul pointed out in Romans chapter 13, governments have a God-given responsibility to use the sword to protect their people from harm. Mr. Turek went on to write, Love your enemies cannot mean that all use of force is prohibited because such an interpretation would contradict the passages just cited and result in some absurd conclusions. It would be absurd to say that love your enemies means allow them to kill your family. How would that be loving your enemies? It would be absurd to say that love your enemies prohibits all wars. What about the war against Hitler? Not justified? Please, how would that be loving to the Jews or the countries overrun? And so as I close, uh, I think you see that freedom is never free. Let us pray. Father, this morning we acknowledge that you reign in majesty and strength. The world you establish cannot be moved. Your throne is forever. You are from eternity past before anything was. The seas lift up their voices in praise of your name. The pounding of the waves gives evidence of your greatness. The distant thunder gives indication of your power. Your rules and regulations and statutes stand forever. Your supernatural holiness adorns your presence. And though the wicked spring up like grass and evildoers seem to flourish, they will soon be destroyed because you and you only are worthy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Kenneth, how about coming and lead us in some songs, plural, and uh, we'll celebrate uh, again our freedom because we live in the United States of America.
hymn number 487. Let's stand and sing the first, second, and fourth verses.
All right, Kenneth, choose one more, and that'll be our benediction. dismissed. Thank you, Kenneth. That's double time. Get you double time. <laughs>